Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So a couple episodes back, we were pontificating about whether beginners should teach and you know the, the benefits of a beginner teaching and, and master's teaching. And uh, I just happened upon an, an article in, in my perusing of the web over the last week or so, and uh, this, this line from Tatiana Mack stood out to me in an article aptly titled Why Beginners Should Teach. And uh, she said that beginners acutely feel the struggles of other beginners. And uh, I just mm-hmm. found that that is just a, a great distillation of, of why beginners should teach and, and share what, what they're learning, essentially, as they're going. Uh, because they acutely feel what masters no longer <laughs> are even t- attuned to. They're just completely oblivious to yeah, there, there are certainly a lot of benefits, not just to the person learning, but to the person teaching as well. If you're new to a topic and you want to learn it well, one of the best things you can do is help other people learn it. And I know that when I was um, when I was in school, I, would, I was regularly teaching what I was learning. Uh, so I was often acting as a tutor for other people. And it makes a huge difference. You, you have to learn how to explain things in ways that you haven't thought about yet. Uh, in order to get people to understand, because not everybody understands in the same way that you do. And so trying to figure out different ways of phrasing something or different ways of explaining it is a very powerful way to increase and improve your own understanding of how something mm-hmm. works. So, and, and you know, I've had this conversation as well, because we've talked a little bit about some of the um, slightly more advanced techniques in watchmaking, which people don't really talk about and they don't really discuss in detail, even something like Daniel's watchmaking doesn't really talk about some of the the bits that we we're most interested in in um, in any kind of detail and and we've talked about you know sitting down and actually trying to figure some of this stuff out between the two of us and then sharing that information you know even though we don't we don't know it as well as I know there are people out there who know it far better than we do and we don't know it as well as them at the same time they're not sharing it and you know if we sit down and try and figure it out amongst ourselves Maybe we can explain it in a way that other beginners or other, probably beginners is a poor example in this case, but intermediate people who are trying to get to an advanced stage, they'll be able to explain it in ways that maybe they understand better. Um, and again, some of these advanced uh, masters may not even realize that there is a need for this knowledge to be shared out there. So it is it is important for people of all skill levels to share, but it's also important for people to acknowledge that they're not a master of something yet. They're Again, like um, Dean DK, we've talked about him a number of times, his YouTube channel. Uh, he's very clear up front. He's like, look, this is my journey as a beginner watchmaker learning how to do these things. And he makes mistakes. And he's he's very honest about the fact that he's, uh, you know, that he doesn't know everything about this. And that's important when you when you are a beginner and you're trying to teach something. Acknowledge that you don't know everything. But you're right. It, it's, a, it's a great way to, to learn how to do things and to... And to learn from somebody who's who's in that same position as you. Mm-hmm. And writing about what you have learned helps to clarify and cement your own thinking sure. on what it is that you're learning as well. Yeah. Yeah, the, the old adage, uh, to teach is to learn twice. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then another little bit of follow-up way back in episode 38. Uh, we talked a little bit about some augmented reality glasses that, mm-hmm. that I had fitted to my face and, and tried on and got to mess around about. With and, and those were the focals by North. Yeah, very and, stylish glasses. You were unwilling to let us share that photo of you, John. <laughs> yeah, fun little Easter egg in that that uh, recording of, of Time for a Pint that we did. My 
photo for that has has the focus glasses. Ah, yes. Uh, but one thing that I had lamented about the, the Focals 1.0 was that there wasn't much of a, a platform. Right. Um, it was just very much what it was out of the box, and there was nothing for developers to, to build on and, and improve on. And I'd been anxiously waiting for them to release Focals 2.0 to see if they would address that. They were supposed to release it earlier this year, and uh, that kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And uh, now it turns out they've been acquired by Google. So uh, there, there's, if that the product is not sunset, I think there is more of a hope now that it will actually be turned into to a platform. Mm. We'll see whether anything drops from Google before Apple's take on, on AR finally mm. drops. Yeah, we had speculated that, that in order for that product to be useful, that it really needed to have the backing of one of the two mm-hmm. major phone manufacturers or phone OS manufacturers, I should say. And I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, somebody's picked them up because it looked like the technology was promising. But again, without deep integration into the OS, there's a very limited amount of connectivity and, and usefulness that you're going to get out of that, uh, you know, that integration. So I am happy to see that. I, I'm a little curious to see what Google ends up doing with it, what their next iteration of AR is. Uh, their first iteration of AR glasses did not go so well. So I'm kind of curious to see how they, you know, how they handle the second take at it. Obviously, you know, that's not particularly useful to me because I'm not an Android user right now. And I don't see Android being something that uh, that I, I really dig into at any time in the future. So I'm I'm more interested in seeing what Apple does with their take on AR. And also, I'm kind of curious to see what, what um, you know, how much interest Google has in doing um, Android stuff going forward. They've um, they've dropped support for their their own Pixel 4 phone uh, well before they've got another, you know, replacement for it coming out. So I'm a little curious to see whether they're getting disinterested in, in Android and whether, you know, sort of the shine is worn off of the product and, and they're not really interested in putting a lot of time and attention into it because we've seen Google do that in the past where they, you know, they find a new shiny and they go down that road. So we'll see how how much work they actually put into into a new AR product for Android if they're not really spending a lot of time developing it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see uh, whether anything comes of this at, at Google I.O. 2021. So another product that, that North had made was the, the Mayo Arm Band, which was a, this sort of gesture control mm. band. And uh, they sunset that product when they decided to focus their energies on the focals. And I actually thought that the two would have gone very well together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they opted for more of a ring control joystick instead of this armband that would essentially take electrical signals from your brain traveling down to your hand and translating those into gestures that, that the computer or whatever it is you were interacting with would understand. And it was just a really neat interface for manipulating bits and, and data or even controlling things like drones. And, and whatnot. A curious little upstart uh, is bringing something called the Mudra Band to the Apple Watch, which delivers a, a similar sort of, of gesture and navigational control for the, the little screen on your wrist. But the upside or, or the pitch here is, is that you can operate your watch one-handed. So if you happen to have something in your hands or you just aren't able to, to actually interact with the screen on your Apple Watch, you can throw a gesture or two at it so has, say, have it silence an alarm hmm. or whatever it is you, you want it to to do. And it all works over Bluetooth. It's basically taking these electrical signals from your brain that are traveling to your hand, 
turning them into Bluetooth signals and throwing them over the air and uh, allowing it to, to be controlled in that way. Seeing alternative input for devices is always interesting. We've talked a little bit in the past about some of the accessibility options that are out there for uh, for people. Uh, I've spoken to a few people who um, whom I know who are are related to uh, to people with with vision problems and um, and can't use a phone the way that we would use the phone in terms of uh, um, you know accessing it. Uh, there's um, some new options in um, iOS 14 which are going to allow things like uh, tapping the back of your phone to interface different things. Uh, right now, it's just going to be a simple double tap or triple tap to be able to to access different things. Uh, so I'm always interested in seeing what alternatives are out there and what um, you know what works well. And um, I, the more the more of these these weird interfaces we see, the better because some of them are going to stick, some of them are going to be horrible, and uh, and some of them are are actually rather impressive. Uh, in the accessibility realm, I saw a video the other day. Uh, a woman was showing how she interacts with her phone. She's completely blind, and it was how she interacts with her iPhone. And uh, I didn't realize that um, the iPhone has a Braille keyboard available on it. And the Braille keyboard has six um, six keys on it. And so she holds her phone with her screen away from her, and she's got three fingers from either hand tapping out all of her texts using this Braille keyboard. And so she can, you know, she can go off and, and type at a much faster rate than I can on my normal keyboard. And I'm, I'm looking at her. I'm jealous. I'm like, I can't believe how fast she's typing. You know, she, she's just blasting along. Um, and, uh, and she's able to, to type everything that I would normally type. I don't know if she has access to emojis and things like that, but, you know, certainly she was able to type out the, the tweet or whatever it was that she was typing far faster than I can with my two thumbs on a, on a regular, uh, iOS keyboard. So I'm always interested in seeing these accessibility things and, and this could easily be seen as an accessibility, um, feature. And so I'm curious to see those and see which of them are good which of them are better than what we are currently doing because there there have to be better interfaces out there than the ones that we've just become accustomed to. This particular implementation of the Mudra brand is it's a little on the, the clunky side. Uh, I'm certainly not uh, advocating for or promoting this. It is a Kickstarter, so oh, yes. be careful <laughs> how you burn your money. Uh, I would not necessarily recommend uh, backing this particular project. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know anything about these these founders or, or this company in, in any way, but I just thought it was a, an interesting concept and an interesting implementation of tech that uh, I've had seen implemented mm-hmm. previously and uh, was quite impressed by in uh, a slightly larger and, and even bulkier yeah. implementation, actually. And again, obviously be cautious about these, these kinds of interfaces that are not being you know, offered through uh, development with the first party developer, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Apple or whether it's Google, uh, whomever it is, because there are going to be limitations on what they can do in terms of their interface into the OS and, and how they can, um, how they can actually tie into it. So that's also the other thing that you've got, always got to be careful about with these, these kinds of technologies. And you're always only ever one model away of, of your strap <laughs> not being supported by the new Apple Watch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I am a big fan of the the back tap that uh, you mentioned there. It's coming out on iOS 14. I do have that enabled. And uh, I use VoiceOver quite a bit, which is a, mm-hmm. an accessibility feature that is, is targeted at uh, people who are, are vision impaired. And uh, I use it so I don't have to have my, my head craned over looking at my screen. I can very quickly have it read emails to me or articles or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I've switched that gesture from the uh, the lock button over to a triple tap on the back because I would accidentally turn voiceover on in all sorts of strange situations. Often when yeah. my hands were full, say uh, carrying a, a box or, or lifting something up or you know, changing the tires on the car, and then all of a sudden my, my phone just starts talking <laughs> at me. It, so far, no false triggers on the, on the triple tap on the back, so I'm, I'm very happy to have that feature available. And then I've been able to relegate other accessibility features to the the sleep wake button instead. Yeah, I haven't I haven't tried uh, the double tap triple tap yet, and I haven't gone so far as to use the voiceover. However, with the current generations of AirPods, they will do things like read out your text messages to you. Uh, so oftentimes, I am busy in the shop. I've got my hands filthy, or they're you know they're doing something, and I can't stop what I'm doing. It is kind of nice. I know that I've got a, a message that's come in. And if I'm listening to my AirPods, it'll actually just read my air, my message out to me. Same thing when I'm in the car, CarPlay, I can actually get that, the get it to read my messages out to me, which is great. Uh, and you can then also respond by by dictating mm-hmm. replies to it as well. And um, I don't I don't use it as much as I probably should, but it's certainly a, a powerful feature. And it's nice to know whether it's something that I should be paying attention to, whether it's somebody I should be ignoring. Uh, same thing when uh, a phone call comes in, it tells me who the phone call is coming in from. All those are things that are that are nice to have, and again, I could live without any of those features. But they're all things that sort of make my life a little bit better. And and uh, again, they all come from the world of vision impairment, and and just how you know a lot of people cannot see these these things. Uh, I know somebody was uh, mentioning the other day that um, they were thinking about getting a um, an Apple Watch, the next generation Apple Watch, for their spouse who's who's vision impaired because uh, he can see to some degree. He's, he's legally blind, um, but the display on the Apple Watch can be made large enough that he can actually see it. We've got LiDAR in the iPads now. There's just a few <laughs> more generations away from having LiDAR on a watch. And yeah. That'd be some serious superpowers for anyway, with, start with being, vision impairment. Uh, I can start being a daredevil and uh, start seeing the <laughs> start seeing the world through, uh, through uh, LiDAR vision. LiDAR man. Yeah. I mean, that would have been helpful for me this morning with the uh, the deep fog that was uh, that set in over uh, over Scott Corners this morning. I I had uh, about twenty meter visibility when I first woke up, so it would have been handy to have uh, have some lidar in my vehicle when I was uh, when I was driving in. Well, maybe when you you trade it in for your Tesla, then you'd be all set. So we went very long recording last episode. There's also manner of things that that got cuts and, and that we didn't even get around to, to talking mm-hmm. about in the time that we had set aside to record. And we spoke a lot about the, the students from uh, the school, Lycée Egare School there in France. Uh, we were talking about the SPEMT open source project. Two people we, we also should have mentioned but, but didn't were Luc Monet and Cyril Privénodo. And these guys are, are really the, the progenitors and the, and the driving force behind this project. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had been exposed to, to Cyril's work in the past a number of years ago. Uh, I believe it was his, his eccentricity watch. We may even have touched on it here on the show. We've, we've spoken about a couple of his watches on the show. He, I think he ended up winning an award at one of the... Uh, the Young Talent Competitions. Yeah, one of the Young Talent Competitions a few years ago. And a few of their a few of his watches have ended up in, you know, being highlighted at SIHH and whatnot. So, yeah, we've, we've spoken about a few of his watches over the years. And impressive what he's been able to do with uh, with some of his uh, some of his designs. Mm-hmm. And Luke Monet hasn't made a, as much of a splash 
as Cyril has, but uh, he's done some really finely finished wandering hours mm-hmm. type complications and, and other things tangential to making watches. And uh, he certainly knows his, his stuff. Yeah. And, uh, these two definitely deserve some, some credit and uh, apologize for not spending more time talking about the two of them in the last episode as well. And and since that episode, I've I've in fact tried contacting them and um, and emailed them. I haven't heard back from them. I don't know if it's just because they're they're busy. Uh, obviously, COVID time, I it's easy to to forget to do things or respond to emails. You for, you know you forget which which month it is. And uh, so I'm going to try reaching out to them again and see if I can get some details. But I have reached out to them. So hopefully we'll we'll hear back a little bit about uh, about what the project is and and what state it's at. Maybe I can even get some documents from them and and start seeing where that is because it would be really nice to, to experiment with it. If you go on their website, they've got a couple of good videos showing large-scale models of the escapement. And those are interesting to watch because you can get a good sense of what's actually happening with it and how it's working and uh, where they've been able to remove lubrication from parts of it because there's no no need to delubricate some of the, the jewels on the uh, on the escapement, things like that. So I'm really curious to, to get some more details about it and to, to try making one of these. I think it would be, um, whether I actually end up, ever end up using it in a watch or not, I, I think at the very least it would be nice to make a model of it and see just how, how well it works and uh, see if it's worthwhile pursuing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, escapement tech is always mm. interesting to me. The Swiss Lever escapement's kind of been the, the stalwart escapement over the, the past two centuries, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. And uh, the coaxial escapement is, is shaking things up a little bit, and then there's been other things... Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's certainly advantages to the way that the Swiss lever escapement works, and and certainly from a mass production point of view, there there are definite advantages to it. Um, there are fewer advantages when you're making one-offs of them. Uh, they're certainly more complicated in some ways to make, and um, but also the other disadvantage that you have is when it comes to lubrication and and therefore servicing and longevity of it. Uh, certainly, some of these alternatives allow you to to be lubrication free or lubrication light, so to speak. Um, one of the things with the coaxial that um, Daniels was trying to get to is was trying to get to a, a watch that could increase its service of, service life and increase the length of time between servicing. And one of the things he was aiming for was a was a lubrication free escapement. I don't think he quite got there, but it's um, it was certainly better than what the the Swiss lever escapement was doing. I'd say Daniels successfully achieved it. His pocket watches, yeah. Think garnered some excellent performance and mm-hmm. longevity out of the escapement. Mm. Um, when it comes to mass production, however, it is a different story. Yeah. And you actually end up with a far more complexity and <laughs> time needed to lubricate the, the escapement when it comes to the mass-produced coaxial. And even Roger Smith has admitted to needing a, a little bit of lubrication on, on his variant on the, the coaxial mm-hmm. escapement too. And then Omega certainly had all, yeah. all sorts of, of pitfalls and ups and downs as they, they tried to iron out exactly how they would treat the escapement Mm -hmm. Uh, but you basically go from two points of lubrication on a swiss lever to you know up around 40 points of like minuscule minuscule amounts of lubricant and and it does have to be small because if you put too much then it then it retards the motion uh the escapement and you lose energy on, on the transfer um so it's yeah it certainly adds a level of complexity yeah and uh doesn't quite or i shouldn't say it doesn't quite it, it it doesn't solve what what daniels had, had set up to solve with sure. with the coaxial escapement sure yeah so i'm i'm curious to see this spmt uh escapement it is based off of a um a, a vintage or older 
uh, escapement. They've improved on an older escape technology. So I'm, I'm really curious to see it. I'm really curious to see how well it works without lubrication and to see that. It was interesting. I was speaking of different um, escapements and, and the English lover escapement. Uh, the Struthers were on a recent episode of the Minutia Repeater podcast. Uh, Kieran spoke with them about the, some of their upcoming projects and a little bit about their past projects. And one of the things they were discussing was their use of the, the English lever escapement versus the Swiss lever escapement. Uh, so that was an interesting conversation. If you if you have any interest in hearing why why they've gone to that versus the the standard Swiss one, and uh, they they have made a few changes to it as well. The the English lever. Uh, so that it was nice to hear them talk a little bit about that and dispel some of the rumors and and sort of the the myths about the English lever because uh, they've obviously dealt with uh, enough antique watches now that they they've seen where these watches survive and where they wear and and how they've managed to uh, to sort of outlast some of their um, some of their contemporaries at the uh, you know when you're talking about a, a two or three hundred year old watch. Mm. Interestingly, they don't, they don't claim to to beat or be able to beat in, in any way the performance of the Swiss Lever. No, uh, no but they are, are still looking to improve upon the the durability and reliability of of older English mm-hmm. Levers, which is certainly much easier to do today with the all the modern advances in, in metallurgy and just material science in general. Yeah, that was a, a great episode of the Benusha Repeater podcast, and I, I highly recommend checking it out. It's just a nice, well-rounded podcast in general with uh, lots of interesting insights. Certainly some interesting people who end up on there, and uh, Kieran has had a, had a couple of good guests on there recently. Some of the earlier episodes, he talks about some watch technology in depth, which is nice, and explains how, how certain things work. Uh, one of the ones I listened to recently was about the equation of time. So it was kind of nice listening to him diving into the equation of time a little bit, talking about a little bit of the the actual mathematics behind it and the theory behind it. It was nice to see that kind of thing uh, showing up in a podcast, getting into sort of the the real nitty gritty details about uh, about watch technology. And in a similar vein to the equation of time, we've got these sunrise and, and sunset watches. And a, a neat innovation that caught my attention a couple of months ago was in the, the Crayon Anywhere. Yeah, we spoke with the Crayon Everywhere a while back, which is a crazy, insane, expensive, complicated <laughs> watch that could show you the time of sunset and sunrise from any location on, on the planet. And that uh, was completely user, um, serviceable is the wrong word, uh, completely user alterable. Adjustable. <laughs> Adjustable, yeah. there we go. So the user could adjust the the location that they wanted to know the time of sunrise and sunset for, and it would run all the math mechanically and then output the the appropriate display. And uh, they've taken that concept and, and brought it to a slightly more affordable watch, still <laughs> astronomically expensive, yeah. in, in the low six figures rather than in the, the high six figures. It's, it's only one of my houses instead of multiple houses. <laughs> uh, but the... The tech behind the the crayon anywhere is essentially a a watchmaker adjustable cam, which is uh, just a really neat piece of tech that I hadn't seen done yet in any form on uh, these sunrise sunset sort of complications, which is one of my favorite complications. But on almost any other incarnation other than what crayon has come out with, you're looking at having to have brand new parts machine for your watch if you happen to move from 
London to, to New York, yeah, yeah. or to Ottawa. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I've I've played around with the idea of doing some some of that, not on a watch, but on a clock. I've I've been thinking about a, building a regulator clock for my my shop, um, not because I really need it, because I've got an atomic radio clock in my my shop, so I don't really need um, a regulator anymore for accuracy. But uh, just just for sort of tradition, it would be nice to have a, a nice regulator clock, pendulum clock in my uh, in my studio, and. I've thought about adding a sunrise sunset complication to it, but of course that then leads to the problem of well, if you move, you then have to remachine that that you know all the cams that are that are around that. Same thing even with the equation of time. The the equation of time is not universal across mm-hmm. the, the the globe. You will have to have a different cam depending on where it is that you're located. And while it's not going to change dramatically, if you go between certain places. Uh, you know, you go between London and Paris, it's not going to change dramatically because they're close enough together. But again, even uh, even the differences between uh, Ottawa and London in terms of uh, uh, latitude, you would you would definitely notice a difference with it. Is it that is it close enough between Paris and London? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah it's well. Here's the thing: you're not going to notice the difference in terms of you know when it, when you see a little when you see a little tiny indicator arm telling you whether it's like plus five minutes, plus ten minutes. You're not going to notice the difference in you know a couple of degrees difference on a, on the arm uh, between the two, but yeah, there as you get further away, you're going to start noticing more and more of a difference. I do. I will say that I do prefer the watches that actually have a second minute hand, which shows you what the adjusted time is as a second minute hand, as opposed to the um, the offset, because when you look at a lot of these complications, you look at it and say, okay. It's eleven twenty-three, and the offset is six-ish minutes, right? Whereas there are some versions of it which actually have a second-minute hand that show you exactly what it is. So it's like, okay, it's eleven twenty-three on my on my clock, but solar time, it's actually you know eleven twenty-nine, and it shows you what it is as a separate hand. And I do like that that little bit of extra complexity and and uh, a little bit of extra clarity in terms of of what it is, so you don't have to sit there trying to run the math in your head of how, how much it actually is off. And just for the, the sake of the listeners, you're referring to the, the equation of time. I'm, yes, I'm, yes you're right. Sorry. I'm, I am, uh, I am talking about two different things in the same, <laughs> the same conversation, um, that, that but they're, similar, they're also yeah. related in, in many ways, mm-hmm. but uh, you're right. They, they are, they are doing that. Um, there was a, was it Rosie Kirk did a great clock a couple of years ago. Uh, we talked about, she was a um, student at Birmingham. Birmingham city university. Yeah. And she uh, she did a great clock for her sort of student project, which had sunrise sunset um, indicators on it, and that was uh, that was a nice nice setup that she did, and uh, it looked fabulous. So yeah, there's some people doing really good versions of these, both the sunrise sunset as well as the equation of time one that uh, that that are out there. So it's one of those those complications that doesn't get put out there enough, and I, I think it's uh, I think it's it's quite fabulous. Just like I'm I'm a big fan of the moon phase. Any of these any of these celestial uh, sort of astronomical complications are, are kind of fun. They they tie the the manufactured and mechanical time that we've we've put on our wrist into what's actually going on in the world around us, the, the physical world around us. And it's it's always nice to have that tie in between the two, so that you you realize that yeah, this isn't just a you know a mechanical thing that that we've uh, you know that we've created. There is in fact a uh, you know relation to the world around us. You've hinted at it a little bit there with the offset minute hand, uh, mm. but for anyone who's not familiar, how would you describe the equation of time? 
so on our watches, we're separating out the, the day into uh, 24 hours and 60 minutes in each hour and 60 seconds in each minute. And we're, we're, we're separating them out into equal days. And no matter whether you're talking about December 21st or June 21st, we're treating the two days as equal. And the reality is that they're not equal in length. Uh, every day of the year is slightly different in length. And uh, also the, uh, the amount of sun, t- um, where the sun is, in, is positioned in the sky is a little bit different thanks to the tilt of the earth, thanks to uh, our, our odd elliptical orbit around the sun. Uh, also, even effects of things like the the moon orbiting around us, all of those um, all of those different planetary and and sort of celestial uh, events affect the way that um, the Earth actually rotates. And so, every day is not exactly twenty four hours. And uh, the equation of time is a way of calculating the offset between the mechanical time that we've evenly divided with the actual solar time that's out there. So when you look at um when you look at noon for instance on your watch and you look up in the sky and you see the sun above you, uh the sun is not necessarily uh, directly above you at the noon position and that is that equation of time offset. Now it starts to get even more complicated when you start adding in things like your um uh your daylight savings time or British summer time depending you know, or whatever offset time that you're using as a as a way of of quote unquote saving time in the in the summer, um, so it you know that that starts to throw another monkey wrench into the into the works. But the equation of time is sort of a way of trying to calculate that out and figure out this is this is what the actual offset is between the the mechanical time on your wrist versus the solar time that's above you. And uh, I think that it generally goes sort of plus 15 to minus 15 minutes, depending on where you are in the year. Uh, and while it's tangentially related to the uh, solstices and the equinoxes, it's not directly related to it. So the longest day of the year is not actually uh, at one of the solstices. I think it's actually, is it like December 26th or something like that? Uh, where it's actually the longest day of the year. It's just a little over 24 hours, I think it is. Um, so it, it doesn't directly match up with the the things that we're used to celebrating in the solstice and the equinox. But um, they, it's a similar idea where the, you know, with the solar, well, if you're not living at the equator, uh, you you know, where your days are, are even in terms of the amount of light that you have, um, if you live north or south of the equator any by any amount, then you're used to days getting longer, days getting shorter. It's a similar idea. It's just in this case, it, it's related to uh, the actual solar time versus the, uh, the, the manufactured time that's on your wrist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a very simple way to think of it is uh, if you happen to have a sundial in your garden or just imagine yourself living you know, a couple centuries ago when sundials were more common in, in how people kept time uh, it's basically just the difference between the time that you would see on your your watch or your clock versus the time that a sundial mm-hmm. would be displaying yeah yeah exactly and i have actually seen the largest sundial in the world in person where is the largest sundial in the world located it is located in jaipur india there was a uh, somebody or another i don't even want to begin to guess what his title was who has this massive park of astronomical inf- uh, instruments that he made for himself. And uh, the largest sundial is there, and it's accurate to two seconds. You can actually see the, like you can sit there and you can watch the sun 
blasting along. And, uh, you know, every every couple of there's marks for every every two seconds. It's rather impressive. Do you vaguely recall you, you mentioning this in the past now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Be, yeah, quite the thing to see, I'm sure. And on the opposite side of the planet, a, a brand new and beautiful sun-filled studio recently opened its doors. Grand Seiko's studio, Shizukuishi, uh, was recently opened, not to the public, thanks to, to COVID-19, but it will eventually open to the public. They'll even have some special pieces that you can buy to, to commemorate the opening of this studio, as well as some neat things that you can see in, in their gallery space there. But uh, it looks like uh, quite a, a charming place to, to work in and ply one's craft. I'm I'm infinitely jealous of anybody that gets to work there. It looks like a gorgeous building and a gorgeous space to work in. Um, certainly, they've made some different choices in terms of uh, things we've discussed about in the past, like flooring, for instance. They've chosen not to go with the traditional floor where they're using something like a linoleum floor for for the, the space. They're actually using a natural wood floor uh, in there, which has other advantages. We've discussed about the, the pros and cons of using something like linoleum. Uh, you know, it, it obviously is very watchmaker friendly, but it's also not very person friendly. It's it's a little more clinical, whereas the these beautiful wood floors they have there look gorgeous and they'd be really nice to, to work around and, and sort of be around on a daily basis. So yeah, I, I'm jealous of anybody that gets to work in that uh, that facility. And uh, I'm I'm hoping that uh, the next time I go over, maybe I'll try and make a trip up to it because it looks like a really, really fascinating facility. And uh, I don't know how much they let you sort of see of what's going on in there. It would be nice to sort of see how, where where they are and what's going on. And as you say, they actually have a watch that will only be available at that studio. They've done that before uh, with some of their um, – with one of their previous studios. They They had a piece that was only available if you actually visited that studio. Uh, so that's that's a nice little touch as well. If you want that, you have to go there. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's quite a controversial Seiko auction that's been sort of hitting the the interwebs as of late from from Bonhams. It, it was there, and then it wasn't there, and there was lashback from the Seiko collectors community. But a neat piece from that is actually a, a unique Seiko mm-hmm. that was only available at the Olympic Village, at, oh, I believe, right. in the, the 1964 nice. Olympics, and uh, that is quite a a neat little chronograph that would be quite hard to come by today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it certainly I'm would sure. be. Yeah, yeah it's, it's nice to see when, when companies do that, when they make something available exclusively at a at a site like that. Uh, Apple did something similar at the Rio Olympics where they had um, watch straps that were only available for purchase there, uh, and they were related to the different countries, so you could get, get unique watch straps for, uh, for that. Uh, I had a friend who was down there, and she picked up a couple of those for, for various people who were interested. And, uh, yeah, that was kind of nice to, to see. So, it's it's nice when when companies do that. They have a little something. Although I suspect these are these watches are not quite as inexpensive as an Apple strap, Apple watch strap. Well, collecting hard to find Apple watch straps is a whole subculture unto I'm itself. I'm sure it is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I still don't think they're as expensive as the Seiko is going to be. <laughs> no, it's, it's well the their piece that you can buy there um, actually at the the studio is a little more accessible. But the first piece to come out of their studio is uh, I would say a home run. Yeah, uh, the price <laughs> price is not at all accessible. No, uh, but um, it's it's not unwarranted mm-hmm. uh, given other products on the market of comparable quality. Mm. I mean, take away the gold case, and uh, sure, I mean you could could find you could find you could produce it for less money if you want if you really wanted to produce a budget version of it. But you're right; it, it is nice to see Grand Seiko sort of stretching themselves a little bit and and uh, 
and pushing deeper into that market because, frankly, they are producing some of the nicest stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Um, consistently, they are producing very, very high-end work. And uh, they, I don't think they get quite as much credit uh, in the collecting world as they probably should have in terms of the the quality and the, the innovation that they're putting into their pieces. So, And I think the studio is an, is an attempt for them to sort of separate themselves out from the manufacturing facilities of Seiko themselves. And so Grand Seiko now has their own dedicated space. And I think they're they're trying to push the brand as, uh, you know, as a separate thing and try to, you know, this is a this is a way of helping with that. They can they can continue pushing forward with with that um, that sort of segregating themselves above uh, the the regular Seiko brand. Yeah, well, Basel World may be a, a thing of the past now. Who knows? Uh, back when it was a, a more momentous occasion or the momentous occasion in the, the world of watchmaking for the year. Uh, it was notable when Grand Seiko announced that it was becoming a brand unto itself mm-hmm. and separating itself off from Seiko. And that, as you've said, is certainly all the more evident now that, that they have their very own studio that is completely mm-hmm. separate from the rest of, of Seiko. Not that they didn't ever not have their their own sort of studio and domain within the company, hmm. but to have a facility unto themselves now really cements that. Yeah, so the watch we're, we're referring to here from Grand Seiko is that their 60th anniversary limited edition. And what really stands out to me for, for this particular watch is the caliber that has come out of the, this new studio. And that is the, the Seiko 9SA5. Uh, so we've had the the Seiko 9S around for a while, uh, but I, I just think the the movement architecture uh, of the 9S A5 is really thoughtful and honed, and, and really is Grand Seiko flexing its chops. Yeah, this is a this is a great example of them improving an already good, an already great movement, frankly, and then adding some extra features to it, adding some uh, you know some refinement to it. That's that's quite nice. I don't think refinement really really does it justice. Like if you if you put the two of them side by side, there's really a stark difference mm-hmm. between them. Um, this is the the first Seiko. Pardon me. This is the first Grand Seiko caliber and Seiko as well as a whole. This is the mm-hmm. first uh, movement uh, out of that region of Japan that I, I've seen that has the, the full balance cock or full balance bridge. Pardon me. It's not even a cock. It's got a full balance bridge that that spans the watch, which is. Mm-hmm. Um, Really great for for stability and does aid in long term performance. Uh, but on top of that, they've actually got their their free sprung balance and a brand new escapement uh, as well, kind of yeah. somewhat similar to the the AP escapement we were talking about earlier. If there's one thing I really appreciate that that Daniel's brought to Omega, it's not so much the coaxial escapement, but the free sprung balance wheel. Yeah. And uh, until the coaxial came along, Omega did not, as far as I know have any watches equipped with a free-sprung balance. Mm. And this piece from Seiko is is the first one with a free-sprung balance. It actually has uh, inertial weights that are similar to the ones that Omega uses, sort of a, a square shape. You get uh, mm-hmm. more of a, a star shape from from Rolex, the, the micro Stella. Uh, I guess the, the Stella kind of alludes to the stars. And then you have the Gyromax coming out of Patek Philippe. When you're operating at, at this level of execution, I, I think... That a free sprung balance is just par for the course. Now. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that we 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 should be seeing more and more of in these high end movements. And I think collectors uh, in general are starting to understand the benefits of it more. 
And so it's something that they're they're starting to ask about more and more. I mean, heck, you're even seeing it in that that Hamilton that I talked about mm-hmm. uh, uh, last time, where you know that Hamilton H50 coming out of a, a watch that is, uh, I mean, I think it was five hundred some odd dollars Canadian. It's uh, you know not an not a horribly expensive watch by any means, but it was nice to see that that in their efforts to upgrade that movement for their watch, uh, that they they chose to make it a free spring balance. So it's nice to see that it's certainly something that's doable in mass production. There's no reason not to. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's nice to see that this is, this has now entered the Grand Seiko world as well. I mean, even the, the Swatch System 51 has a free spring balance in it now. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if, if Swatch can do it, you can do it. <laughs> well, you say that, John, you can do it, but it, the, the next thing is that you have to find the information about how you can do it. And that's something that you and I have discussed a lot off, off air. And, and we've actually had some real problems finding out good information about how to, how to convert movements and how to make free sprung balances. It's, it's more the, the subtle nuances. So the one piece of information that uh, I am, I'm still yet to find really good and, and solid numbers for are, are the, the pinning points. We're going to get really deep in the weeds here <laughs> for, for a bit. Number one, what is a free sprung balance? A free sprung balance is a, a watch in which the, the hairspring is completely uninhibited and, and allowed to operate as it naturally would. So in, in most mass-produced mechanical watches, uh, say the vast majority of mechanical watches that have been produced over the, the past few centuries have what's called a, a pin-regulated balance. And essentially what that's doing is putting two small pins down around the, the hairsprings. The hairspring is what is re- providing the restorative energy for, for the balance wheel. So the balance wheel gets energy from the escapement, it moves, and it can only move so far, and then the hairspring is going to push it back in the other direction so that it can, again, gain some more energy from the escapement and just continues on in this loop. And how fast the balance wheel moves directly controls how fast or slow the, the watch is going to run. Uh, so in a free-sprung balance, you make the hairspring the right length to have the balance wheel oscillate at the target number of vibrations you're looking for per hour. So there are two things that are going to affect how fast the balance wheel is moving. One is the length of the hairspring, and the other is how heavy the balance wheel is. And you want to find the the optimal balance between those two things for, for the best performance that you can get out of the watch. So to pin-regulated balance, rather than having your fixed hairspring you will use these pins and they'll just sort of, they're not hugging the, the spring, but are very, very close to the spring. So that when the, the balance wheel is moving in one direction, that spring is going to expand outwards and collide with one of those pins, the outermost pin. And then it's on its return trip, it's going to contract inwards and then it's going to collide with, with the innermost pin. And that really, and that allows the watchmaker who's servicing the watch afterwards to, um, to, Really do a macro adjustment on how the um, on how fast that balance is is vibrating, and because you can then effectively shorten or lengthen the length of that hairspring. Mm-hmm. So that that's the real advantage of that is that it provides you with that ability to for the watchmaker who's servicing the watch to quickly regulate the the watch and do these large adjustments on it. And in fact, if you look at the back of your watch, if it's an if it's a an, a display back on your watch, you'll often see that that little lever that um, that's on there, then there's, you know, there's a plus or minus or a, you know, fast or slower or whatever on there. And that, that lever is, is one of the ways that you can adjust where those pins are. 
and can adjust the length of that hairspring. So that is a, you know, that's sort of what it's there for is to make it easier to regulate later on. And expediency is is what made the, the pin regulated style come come to prominence as it's just much faster and easier. It's very lazy. And with that ease and that laziness comes a number of trade-offs that affect performance. So in the case of a free-sprung balance, what you're doing is you're, you're trading off the convenience of those pins to regulate the length of the hairspring, which has its own challenges and its own problems, because any time you're affecting the length of that hairspring, you're going to introduce other problems down the road, uh, which gets into things that we're not going to chat about. But you're taking that convenience of the pin regulation and you're permanently pinning the length of the hairspring which means that that's no longer a variable that you're going to affect in the watch, whether that's intentional, whether you're, you know, when you're servicing the watch or whether it's unintentional, like you knock your watch against a doorway as you're walking through it. You can affect the rate of your watch if it's pin regulated by knocking those pins out of out of alignment or, or moving them. Uh, so with the, the free sprung balance, you are uh, you're effectively taking that variable out of the equation. And therefore, the other variable that you have to work with is the mass of the oscillator, in this case, the balance wheel. And so you can then change that that oscillating mass to affect the timing of the watch, which allows you more accuracy in, uh, in terms of your timing. It does take more work to do, but it allows you to more accurately time the watch if you know what you're doing. Yeah, so change, altering the mass uh, isn't generally what, what is occurring when you're... You're changing the moment of inertia, so the mass remains constant, and then what you're doing is is changing how fast or, or slow that particular mass is going to move based on how that mass is distributed. So if you think of, say, a figure skater, when they are spinning around and around and around in circles and at that dizzying pace, as they have their arms out, they're, they're spinning at a, a certain speed, which is quite a bit notably slower. And as they pull those arms in, that's when it becomes that, that dizzying speed where you can hardly even make out the, their faces as mm-hmm. they're spinning around. So that same concept applies here to, to the oscillating body uh, within in the watch. So you're, you're changing the, the moment of inertia of the balance wheel by essentially taking masses that are strategically placed around the outside of the balance wheel and you're either screwing them in or screwing them out. So if you mm-hmm. move them out, the balance wheel is going to move more slowly. And if you move them in or so that the mass is concentrated more towards the center of the, the balance wheel, then it's going to move much faster. So as Chris mentioned, by fixing the, the length of the hairspring, you eliminate a, a whole bunch of variables and that becomes a, a fixed constant. And then the balance wheel itself, by adjusting these inertial weights or, or these masses that, that are strategically placed around it, its perimeter or fellow, to use the proper nomenclature, that also is quite fixed. Unless you have a, a really loose thread or what have you, which in these cases, you're not going to do that. Uh, it's going to be very hard to change that. Whereas, as Chris alluded to, if you say knock a watch, you can have the the pin regulator moved and shipped. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get swan neck regulators and things like this that try to work around that foible. Uh, but that's not the only foible that you're introducing with a pin regulated balance. As the, the energy changes, as the mainspring winds up or, or winds down in a watch, the energy delivered to the balance is also going to change, which in turn changes the effective length of the hairspring and how it's impacting 
those those pins uh, mm-hmm. to have an, an impact on on the timing. And frankly, the biggest problem that I've seen with those pins it comes from you know, and I saw this when I first started doing it. The, it relies on the judgment of the watchmaker to sit there and look at those pins, which are not very large. They're not very far apart. And you have to make sure that you've got the hairspring perfectly balanced in the middle of those pins and that they are not too close to the, the hairspring, but also not too far apart from the hairspring. And it's not as if you can sit there and throw a, you know, a, a dial indicator on it and say, oh, it's exactly you know, X microns away from the hairspring. There's no good way to measure it. It's all subjective. And, and that's, and of course you can, you can throw it on a timing machine to see whether your adjustments have actually affected it positively or negatively, but it's very, very challenging, especially for an inexperienced watchmaker to sit down and be able to say where exactly should those pins go? And can you actually see those pins? I I mean, if, you know, even with a, with a 15 X loop, it, it can be challenging if you don't know what you're looking for to get those pins in exactly right the right position. So removing that variable from the equation is is a huge plus as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And you have not only those distances to, to take into account, but you also have the angle at, at which those pins are, are set against the, mm-hmm. the hairspring. So a lot of these pin-regulated watches, particularly the older ones, they're just sort of straight in line with one another coming out from the, the center of rotation. But the reality is when the hairspring is is coming out and hitting that outer pin, it's actually going to be pulling the hairspring away from the stud just due to the the physics that are at play. And so the effective length is is not just curtailed by that pin, it is the effective length is then also lengthened uh, the further that the balance wheel spins. And then as it comes in and collides with the the inner pin, the opposite effect happens where the the pinning point at the stud and is then pulling the the hairspring in towards itself as that hairspring curls in on itself. So that shortens the effective length of the spring Mm -hmm. in addition to the effective length being curtailed by by that pin. So you you have all sorts of variables and it just really isn't great for isochronism. So you get a lot more stability Mm. out of a a free spring balance because it's such a, a simpler and more reliable system. So so. All this brings us back to, to the one area uh, that I've been trying to find more solid math on is is the pinning points, and and that is the the optimal spacing of the where the the hairspring is pinned at the the stud, which is where it's attached to the to the bridge or the cock, uh, generally on a, a mobile stud carrier, and then where it is pinned to the the collet on, on the balance wheel itself. Further complicating. The math behind this is that you can have all manner of, of different terminal curves on a hairspring. Uh, so, for instance, in this Seiko, I, I believe Seiko ran through something like 80,000 simulations to settle on the exact curvature that they have for their, their overcoil hairspring for this new caliber that they, they've produced. So you have the, the two pinning points, and then you also have the, the curvature of the over coil that goes around the the top so essentially taking the outermost coil of the hairspring raising it up and over the rest of the spring and the reason that you want to do this is to get more um, concentric we'll call it breathing out of the hairspring Mm -hmm. so you want that the forces exerted by the hairspring to be as even as possible 
around the entire circumference uh, of the the spring, or for lack of a better way to, to state it, even though it's not a complete circumference. Uh, the circumference of the, the balance wheel, because the watch can be worn in all manner of different positions. And then you also have the, the inner terminal curve, which is where how the, the spring curves when it comes in to meet the collet. So you have a whole bunch of variables in how those curves are formed, and then there are variables in where those curves should come in to meet where they're actually affixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, there's a whole, whole, there are reams of, of research that have been in, done in this area, but uh, I have yet to find any sort of simple and, and distilled information that, that is readily available in this domain. I mean, there's certainly curves um, that are, are more broadly used within industry. You've got the Breguet overcoil, mm-hmm. you know, the Phillips internal model curve, and, and, you know, the Grossman curves and all these different things. But there, there's a lot at play there. And, you know, with all these modern advances in technology, going through 80,000 different simulations to settle on, on their optimal setup uh, for, for the hairspring and, and how it's pinned and, and formed uh, just goes to show just how, how complex the, this whole area is. Hairspring technology is, is incredibly complicated. And obviously, for somebody like myself, I'm not in a position where I'm going to worry about getting the absolute perfect uh, version of of the hairspring because I can't I, I don't have the, the technology to be able to make the fine-tuned adjustments that somebody like Seiko is making to these hairsprings uh, so I'm I'm a little less concerned about the absolute you know micro adjustments that they're probably concerned about uh, but as you say there's basic things like where to pin these you know the ends of the hairspring which I you know I have to I do have to take into account when I'm when I'm working on on a piece and when I'm you know when I'm setting up this balance and there really isn't any good information out there that talks about here here are the basics that you need to know and understand about doing this you know we've talked about about Daniel's and his watchmaking book and and people often talk about it you know as a sort of the bible of watchmaking and if you sit down with this book and you read it from cover to cover and you follow the instructions you will have a watch well yes but He's missing a bunch of critical details, things like how to set up the free-sprung balance in there. He doesn't really discuss it. I mean, he, I think he gives a couple of paragraphs talking about the balance and, and whatnot and, and the the um, the hairspring, but he doesn't really go into any meaningful detail. He goes into a full chapter's worth of detail on, uh, you know, on historic escapements, which nobody is ever going to use again, but he's... He's missing critical details that are important for somebody who actually wants to sit down and build a modern watch using the techniques that he's that he's talking about. Yeah, there's so many other variables at play too. Even just in you know the material that you you just decide or, or settle on for the the hairspring, and you can now get flat hairsprings using silicon mm-hmm. that have the same sort of characteristics that you're aiming for when you're creating a, an overcoil. And it's essentially you want concentricity in in the power delivery or the restorative power delivery that, that's being offered to to the balance. Mm. Now it, it may seem like oh you're crazy trying to trying to think about these these sorts of things, but it comes from having grappled with it and and seeing the the results of not wholly knowing or 
you know, definitely not grokking all these elements that, that are at play. Because I have converted a number of, of watches over time to free-sprung balance wheels just because I, I prefer it. I'm at, I'm at peace when a, when a watch is running with a free-sprung balance. But some are far more successful conversions than, than others. And knowing those pinning points and getting those curves correct um, all play into that because mm-hmm. essentially what you want in a mechanical watch is for the performance at the the balance wheel to be the same no matter what orientation the watch is in, no matter how gravity is acting on it, and ideally no matter how much energy to to some degree is coming through the gear train from from that mainspring. I mean, clearly when your mainspring's winding down significantly, you are going to see some serious perturbations in the rate. But in the sort of the optimal performance window that you would expect a, a watch to be running in over the course of the day when, it, when it's being worn, uh, and even when it's you know on its nightstand at night before its energy is replenished the following day, you want it to run as optimally as possible in that entire window. Or even in the case of, of say, this, this new Grand Seiko that has an 80-hour power reserve, you know, putting it down... Friday night and then picking up again Monday morning, it's still going to be ticking and running. So making sure that in that entire window or duration of time that the mainspring is winding down, that you're getting the most repeatable rate out of the balance wheel uh, as possible. Mm -hmm. And it's just far easier with a free sprung balance. And then as you you dig in to producing a a free sprung balance, there are these little details that, that pop up and that you do have to get right if you want that kind of isochronism and performance mm-hmm. out of it. And and as you say, this is this is really just the first part of the chain of of making um making sure that your time is accurate and and consistent. You're alluding to problems with the mainspring also uh affecting the uh the power being delivered to the balance. And those are things where you can start to uh use constant force mechanisms to get around that problem as well. There's various ways of of saying, okay, we're only going to use the middle part of the power curve on a on a mainspring so that you are uh you know you're getting more consistent power delivery to the balance there's ways of of um including um remontoirs so that you are getting a, a consistent delivery of power to this uh you start running into problems with that when uh, when you start using things like uh like chronographs where all of a sudden you've got a mechanism that's sucking a huge amount of power from your mainspring um, so, you know, you've got to be careful about those sorts of things as you're working on, on these designs and as you're assembling these watches and all of them add up to, you know, to creating more and more problems and affecting the timekeeping of your watch more and more. So anytime you can eliminate a problem, uh, and you can improve the reliability of one part of the chain, the better your watch overall is going to get. It's obviously never going to get perfect. Uh, these mechanical devices are never going to be you know, as perfect as uh, the quartz movements that are out there or the atomic movements that are out there, they're, they're never going to approach that kind of accuracy. But if you want to try and improve the overall performance of it in general, then these are the kinds of things that you do have to pay attention to. Uh, it would be nice to see somebody who understands this well talking about it in a meaningful way and actually uh, either writing about it or producing videos about it and and actually presenting something in a way that not necessarily a beginner is going to be able to, to understand. I think that setting some of this stuff up is beyond what the average beginner watchmaker is going to, to, to be able to really comprehend and use effectively. But it should be there for the intermediate. 
uh, or the, you know, the, the person who's just about to, you know, just making that step into the advanced world of, of building watches. And, uh, obviously if you go to, you know, some of the, the, uh, high end woe step schools, like, you know, past the basic woe step stuff, when you start getting into their, um, their more advanced, uh, courses, they'll start to teach you these kinds of things. Uh, but that's not necessarily available to all of us. And it would be nice to see some of these details trickle down to the outside world and, and actually be available to those of us who are, who are interested in working at this level, but don't necessarily have the resources of a Swatch group or a Grand Seiko or, or somebody like that. Mm. Yeah. And another way to, to glean this information too is through observation and just looking at, mm-hmm. um, well, lots and lots of examples. But we can't all, you know, be, be buying, uh, you know, six-figure Grand Seikos and tearing them <laughs> apart either, right? Well, fortunately, in, in a lot of these cases, and, you know, for instance, for this this Grand Seiko, they, they've actually published images of the, sure. the balance wheel and whatnot. And I can see that their, their balance wheel and the pinning points on the spring reflect a lot of other balance completes that, that also feature an overcoil, and that's that the pinning point at, at the stud uh, tends to be almost, almost, but not quite 180 degrees opposite, uh, on the other side of, of the balance staff towards mm-hmm. being affixed to, to the collet. And uh, you, you can pick up on the, these little details, but actually knowing the reasoning and the, and the science behind it is where I would like to, to grow my mm-hmm. knowledge base a bit so sure. I can do a better job when, when I can convert a watch over to a, a free sprung balance. Sure. Yeah, and and you and I have talked about maybe trying to to play around with some of that in the shop here as well, and trying to trying to do some conversions uh, after our conversation about Christian Lass's videos. Uh, I am planning on on rebuilding and and doing some some customization on a six four nine seven at some point, and it would be nice to go beyond just modifying the plates and the bridges and the cock and it, and actually going beyond that and and converting it into a free sprung balance, you know, and then starting to maybe add on a few other bells and whistles onto the watch to to see what I can do with it. And I know that I'm not going to be able to get it perfect the first time, but that's fine. I can make multiple versions of it. I can, even if I get the rest of the watch fine and I can, um, you know, I can then sort of play around with, with the balance and actually getting the balance working properly. It would be nice to be able to say, okay, the rest of the watch is done. Now I can sit down and really concentrate on the balance and maybe make four or five different versions of a free sprung balance for it. But it would be nice to have a starting place to work from. Obviously, there's there's nothing that's going to replace real experience in actually trying it and and uh, playing around with different different versions of it, different iterations of it. But if you don't know what variables you need to change and why those variables are affecting the watch in the way that you you know the way that they are, it's difficult to sort of do meaningful experimentation and exploration in 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 your design, especially considering how much time and energy it can take to make some of these parts. You know, if it takes you a week to make a, a new balance for it, you know, how, how many balances can you make before you sit there and, and just sort of throw your hands up and say, all right, forget it. I'm just going to put the, the original balance back in. All right. So, you know, and I'm sure that we can probably figure it out faster than that, but it, it would still be nice to have a, a good starting point and meaningful information to, to work from. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a, a never ending rabbit hole too. Cause I mean, you, you can really start to to nerd out and and try mm-hmm. to optimize all all manner of things and, and get right down to say the the aerodynamics uh, of your balance wheel as they do over at Dubatoon mm-hmm. doing a, a number of of different experiments and, and whatnot that Denis Flagiolet 
that has performed in, in various experiments for for Debatune there, and uh, you know, looking at the, the performance of a number of of the pieces that have come out of there and their their tourbillons and and whatnot that uh, can actually pass muster and, and run it like zero point zero seconds per day through third party testing um, is truly remarkable, and it just shows you how far the the limits of mechanical timekeeping really can be pushed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the opposite hand too, simplicity is king. I mean, you really want to get to the most simple, most effective solution possible. Mm-hmm. And and that's where free-sprung balance shines. And, and looking sort of at the power curve of mainsprings you were alluding mm-hmm. to earlier, I mean, it used to be you know, Geneva Stopworks were sort of the tried and true method for achieving that. But we've been able to simplify things far more significantly over the years. And now we've actually got it dialed into to the form of the, the mainspring itself. So that when it is coiled in that barrel, mm. you get as, as smooth of a power delivery curve as possible over the, the course of it running down. But even then, it's not, it's not 100% perfect. perfect. So there are still areas to improve. But I think that simplicity there, because the, the Geneva Stopworks were not 100% perfect, you were still getting fluctuations sure. or more so a, a sort of a down, downward trend in the, the power delivery curve, which is something that you're going to get with these other mainsprings too. But taking, you know, half a dozen parts, being able to eliminate them simply by changing the curvature and the material science that went into mm-hmm. producing the mainspring um, is a great win. And it's those sorts of, of wins that, that I like to, to see and those, that sort of simplicity. Yeah, and obviously things like alloying has had a huge impact on it. The alloys that we're using in, in hairsprings and mainsprings has made a big difference. Moving to silicon in the, in the, the hairsprings can also have a significant impact. The effect of magnetism on a silicon hairspring is dramatically lower than the the metal hairsprings that we've been using. So there are a lot of different things that we can do to to simplify that. And if I can go and buy a silicon hairspring that I can drop into my watch and use that, then that's great. That eliminates a whole other set of problems with magnetism uh, on the hairspring that I don't have to deal with then. Um, But I am also not in a position where I can knock off a silicon hairspring in my shop. Heck, I can't even knock off a, a, a metal hairspring in my shop, right? I don't, I don't have the advanced alloying technologies and machining and manufacturing technologies that are necessary to do that. So, uh, you know, when we did allude to that with our last episode of, you know, with these open source movements, where are you going to get the hairsprings for these things? Where are you going to get that? You know, mainsprings are pretty easy. We can, we can get good quality mainsprings without too much effort these days. Hairsprings are a totally different, you know, story. I can't necessarily go to to cousins or or uh, Perrin or somebody like that or Otto Frey and say, hey, send me a hairspring that that will, you know, that's designed to to vibrate at eighteen thousand vibrations an hour. I, you know, they're not going to they're not going to do that. They'll be like, well, I can sell you this whole balance, and okay, that's great, but that's you know, do I really want to buy the whole balance for a six four nine seven just to get that hairspring out? Maybe that's what I have to do, you know, if if I want to be able to produce in in small numbers, but once you try and get past making two or three or a half a dozen of something, that becomes really awkward and wasteful, frankly. I shouldn't have to buy full movements just to be able to get, you know, small parts out of this. So, yeah, there's there's so many different things that we can dig into with this. And it's, it would be nice to eliminate the, you know, sort of the, the most obvious things and, and make that simpler. And uh, getting more of that knowledge out there would be great. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. 
You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at offhours. John can be found on Twitter at under the loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand.